Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. We sometimes get a little bit too hung up on the black swan idea and thinking that the individual actions can send events off in a course we couldn't possibly predict. I just don't think that's normally the case. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss black swan events, what's really predictable when it comes to transformative world events, and how geopolitically engaged individuals or organizations can mitigate exposure or even anticipate the next black swan event to come. In part one of the podcast, we're joined by Stratfor Worldview contributor Ian Morris to explore the nature of black swan events from both a historical and a forward-looking perspective. Then in part two, we speak with Jeff Desjardins, a visual capitalist, to discuss how billionaire investors today limit their risk or even profit from these kinds of global inflection points. Thanks for joining us. Joining me today to talk about Black Swan events are Stratfor Managing Editor Sophie Steiner and Dr. Ian Morris, historian, archaeologist, best-selling author, and the Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. Sophie, Ian, thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Brilliant. Um, Ian, you recently wrote a column on, on the making of a Black Swan, um, which we put on Stratfor Worldview November 1st. It's a really interesting subject, and it's something I'd like to delve into in a little bit more detail. But first off, uh, I think a question we need to ask is, what what do we mean when we talk about a black swan? Well, um, people usually use it just to mean something completely unexpected that you couldn't possibly predict. And so it will like the occurrence of a black swan. I mean, it does happen, but it's so rare that you, in everyday life, you just kind of discount it. And then one shows up. And um, when people in, in forecasting use it, they mean an event that's really unusual, but which then has enormous consequences. So Ian, can you tell us what inspired you to write about black swans now? Well, yes, I mean, it was um, the, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his um, famous protests against the, uh, the Catholic Church onto the door of the church in Wittenberg in Germany, where he lived. And you know, this is one of the, the great events that historians like to talk about as a, a moment when just everything changed. And um, they'll often present it as a moment that really nobody could have foreseen this coming. Again, just like a black swan came completely out of the blue, but then afterwards, nothing is ever the same again. And it's it's always curious because as strategic forecasters, uh, we like to feel that the events are inherently, you know, we can see them coming, but these sort of disruptive events are an outlier. They're not always easy to predict. However, uh, that might not necessarily be the case, right? Well, yes. When I started thinking about what Luther did, um, you know, on the face of it, it seems exactly like what you're describing, uh, you know, an event that pops up out of nowhere that no forecaster could possibly have foreseen and that just made all of the forecasts and predictions completely redundant. And you know, great events were going on in Europe at the time. Um, it was beginning to look like the whole of Western Europe might be united under a single empire, the Habsburg Empire. And then what Luther did, it, it set up a series of conflicts that were 
unpredicted by people um, that really made that much less likely to happen. So on the face of it, it seems like this classic black swan event. But then the more I started thinking about it, um, the more I realized, well, you know, a lot of this stuff was sort of predictable. I mean, not predictable in the sense that, say, in September of 1517, you could have said uh, some guy like Luther is going to come along and everything will change. But in the sense that all of the preconditions were there. And I think any forecaster worth his or her salt in 1517 should have been able to say, you know, something like um, Luther's protest and the Protestant movement that comes out of it, this is one of the things we should have on our radar. We should have some contingency plans in place for this. So potentially, if it hadn't been Martin Luther who had made this one bold, significant move, it could very easily have been somebody else. And the conditions were really set for this whole thing to ignite. Yeah, I think there are sort of two ways to look at it. One is always to say, well, um, you know, if not Luther, then, as you say, maybe somebody else. And um, Friedrich Engels, back in the 19th century, uh, he um, very famously suggested all the great men of, hist of history are just representatives of deeper trends. He said if, if Napoleon hadn't been born, well, history required a Napoleon. So one would have happened anyway. And I think that's maybe going a little bit far. But I think in, in the early 16th century, th there's been a series of uh, protests against the church over the previous few generations. So it's really plausible to think a guy like Luther is going to pop up. And then I think the other way to think about it is to say, well, okay, what if Luther or somebody very similar to him had not popped up? What would have happened then? And I think in, in this case, there's a, a lot of the trends that were unfolding are ones that Luther kind of slots into these deeper underlying processes. And a lot of what we think of as the consequences of Protestantism are really just the playing out of these processes. And even if Luther had never existed, things, I mean, it wouldn't have ended up the same way that they did in reality, but things would have ended up in Europe in a rather similar place. So, Ian, you mentioned in your piece that there's a bit of a different way that historians look at black swan events versus forecasters. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think so. I think um, forecasters, of course, you're in the business of looking at recent history and saying, what are, what are the trends that are unfolding and where are they likely to take us? And then you might also ask, is there anything built into these trends which might um, might derail the trends. There's, you know, the feedback process is building up. They might push things in a very different direction from where they're going. Um, and so the, the emphasis is always on finding the longer term processes unfolding and, and you know, where they're likely to take us. And for historians, of course, it's a very different game. You're looking at stuff that is already settled and been done. And the nature of the evidence that you've got tends to emphasize um, the individuals and their motivations and uh, decisions that specific people make. So I think historians tend to be drawn toward um, the idea of, of black swan type events. I mean, some of my colleagues at Stanford taught a course a few years ago called 10 Days That Shook the World, where they took 10 different episodes in history where something happened each time and you could plausibly claim you know, the world is changed um, by this set of events. And you know, for historians, that's a very attractive way to look at the past. And but of course, for, uh, for forecasters, the more that the historical way of thinking about it is correct, the more difficult it becomes to predict anything and work out where the trends are taking us. And it's curious when you take a more global view as well, because clearly the Luther example is focused uh, predominantly in Europe. But um, in your piece, you bring out examples from elsewhere, specifically China and the Middle East, where, where these sort of events do come about. 
Yeah, that is one of the interesting things that I think doesn't get emphasized um, enough. That uh, in the early 16th century, this is the time when the world is really beginning to be pulled together more tightly than ever before. And it's a fairly dramatic way. I mean, Columbus has discovered the Americas uh, just, what, 25 years before Luther. And uh, voyages to India are beginning. China is going to be um, connected to Europe fairly soon. So the, the interlinkages are growing. The world is becoming kind of a bigger place for everybody. And some rather similar social, economic, political processes are going on all across Eurasia at this point. And you do get guys, I mean, certainly not identical to Luther, but with some rather similar ideas to Luther's popping up in China, India, the Middle East. And particularly, um, one of the big things in with Luther is this idea that you don't need a great hierarchy of priests and kings and everybody else telling you what to think about the meaning of the world and, and what God wants. You can get this as an individual Christian by confronting the scriptures, and you have this person personal relationship with God, and God will speak to you directly. And you know, this, of course, doesn't really have any direct parallels in Islam uh, or in Confucianism. But all the same, something slightly similar is going on in both China and India. Out in China, there's a guy named Wang Yangming who convinces himself that you don't need to spend 30 years studying with Confucian scholars in order to understand the meaning of the world. You can work this out for yourself. And in the Middle East, um, this is the period right during Luther's lifetime in 1501, um, the Shah of Persia announces he is a Shiite Muslim. And the, the split between Shia and um, Sunni goes back all the way to the 7th century. But most of the time, it hasn't been all that important. It only really takes off in the 16th century because the, the Persian king decides to embrace Shiite Islam. And a series of wars breaks out um, with the Sunni Ottoman Turks that is, in a lot of ways, is not that different to the Catholic-Protestant wars that start going on in Europe as well. So I think there's similar sorts of forces producing vaguely similar sort of outcomes all the way from the Mediterranean to China. And these are obviously massive parallels to track historically, but also things that, uh, that continue to resonate to this very day. And what can we learn from this in trying to look at what's going to happen in the years to come? Is it just hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can only really know about these things after they happen? Or what kind of lessons can we apply to forward thinking? Yeah, I think the the lessons um, that we learn from somebody like Luther are, are for forecasting at least, are, are pretty simple ones. Um, when I think the more abstract the questions you're asking, the easier it is to use um, the recent past to identify trends and see where they're going. And the more you burrow down into the details, the more individual decisions start to matter and the more genuine black swans um, start to happen. So, like, say, I mean, something like the Arab Spring, I think, is a really good example of this. So, you know, obviously, nobody could possibly have predicted that the actions of one really angry fruit vendor in Tunisia would going to set off this chain of revolutions and civil wars all across the Muslim world. I mean, I mean, I, I, nobody could possibly have predicted that. But on the other hand, the possibility that the, the mounting anger against the um, Arab, the secular Arab dictators was going to spill over and was going to lead to violent uprisings and that you know, some Muslims were going to be trying to modernize their countries and become more like Europe and North America combined with a big, um, more conservative Islamist backlash. I mean, all of these things are entirely predictable. 
predictable. And I think if in 2010 somebody had said, well, you know, within the next five years, there's a pretty good chance we're going to see upheavals all over the Islamic world and we're going to see civil wars in some countries, I think lots of people would have said, yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. But if you tried to say, um, predict the specific course of events, I think it's pretty much impossible you could have got that right. So I think that that is sort of the, the big lesson of this. And maybe we sometimes get a little bit too hung up on the black swan idea and thinking that the individual actions can send events off in a course we couldn't possibly predict. I just don't think that's normally the case. And I think certainly this is something that, that we, I wouldn't say struggle with every day, but it's something we're very cognizant of with the sort of work we do at Stratfor. We have a lot of very, very well-schooled analysts who are students of international affairs, um, you know, who have a vast depth and breadth of knowledge, both about their specific areas of responsibility, but also through history. And certainly one of the things that, that we do that feeds our model is we track lots of information. We call them data points, but all these little nuggets of information that, that happen around the world. And oftentimes in isolation, they seem kind of meaningless. But when you start to connect the dots, uh, you really see a picture form. And I think one of the things that we do to try and add value is when something happens, we very quickly put it in context and we see whether it is important or not in sense of the bigger picture. And certainly part of our methodology is trying to work out, you know, it's separating the signal from the noise. What are the things that actually matter? And, and as you said, it might be something sort of tiny and inconsequential that has this, this huge ripple effect throughout history. So that's the really curious thing from our perspective. And I think something that you always manage to bring out in your columns is this sort of long-term perspective on history and then how it informs our present and then the future, which is incredibly valuable from a forecasting perspective. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the, um, as you say, one of the big challenges is, is putting the events into context. And uh, you know, in some ways, I think you know, a guy like Martin Luther 500 years ago, he does look as if he is casting into doubt the very possibility of using trends from history to see where things might be going. But I think you know, in a way, what he's really showing is that only somebody who has the, the kind of approach Stratfor takes, so of you know looking at what the trends have been um, in recent times, only somebody who has that sort of uh, perspective is going to be able to make sense of what he's doing. Very much so. Um, and Ian, while I've got you here, I'd also like to ask, you You sit on our board of contributors, um, a, a team of world-class uh, academics and global thinkers that contribute to how we consider the world. Um, in what ways do you think yourself and your colleagues uh, really contribute to to the forecasting debate and trying to to bring different perspectives into what we do with, with strategic forecasting? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I like to think that uh, what like, professional historians can do is remind people that uh, using the past to forecast where things might be going it's it's a little bit more complicated than I think people sometimes realise. I think there's this tendency to say, well, what we should do is look to the past uh, and find similar um, similar episodes that have happened before where some of the same factors seem to be playing out and then we can use those to tell us what to do. And so, um, I mean, I feel like there's, in forecasting, there's a school of people who seem locked forever in 1938. And everything that ever happens, this is Munich being played out again. Every foreign leader is Hitler again. Our own leaders are always Neville Chamberlain. Um, everything is 1938. 
And then there's another school of thought that says like everything is 1968 and whatever is happening, it really, it's a rerun of the My Lai massacre and the United States is about to do something terrible and wicked. And um, the most important thing here is not to do these terrible and wicked things. And, um, you know, these, these are very simplistic ways to look at uh, how we can use the past to inform our present judgments. And my sense of it is that you know, what we should be looking for when we study the past um, for forecasting terms, what we should be looking for is a combination of both what makes contemporary events similar to things that happened before and what makes them different. Because usually there's at least as many differences as similarities. And if we can say, well, in 1938, um, the similarities led to a certain kind of outcome, well, how much are the differences now going to change that outcome? And we should maybe be looking to the past not so much for answers to our problems as to define better what the question is and what the possible um, lines of development are, rather than looking for a single answer. Ian, I think you brought up a good point, too, in the sense that it's it's very easy for people to get stuck in what they know and the mindset that they're familiar with. But what makes geopolitics so interesting and what makes forecasting so difficult is it's a mix of history, politics, economics, culture, uh, military knowledge. It takes all of these different subjects and combines them into a single comprehensive look at the world. And I think that's where contributors really come into play very well for our readership as they provide these different viewpoints that can give a a well-rounded look at different events and different things that are happening in different parts of the world. And they may not always match with Stratfor. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I think it's important to always have that broad array of opinions so you can really get a look at how people from different backgrounds are viewing the same events. Well, Ian, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I've certainly learned an incredible amount, and I definitely encourage everyone to go and read your column, uh, The Making of a Black Swan, published November the 1st on Stratfor Worldview. Ian, Sophie, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having us. And that was uh, Managing Editor Sophie Steiner and Dr. Ian Morris, uh, the Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. We'll get to the second part of today's conversation about black swan events with visual capitalists Jeff Desjardins in just a moment. But first, we want to take a moment and respond to one of our listener questions. In episode 43, we explored blockchain, Bitcoin and digital ledger technology. Doug raised a question about the idea of new Bitcoins. While we noted that a maximum number of Bitcoins that can ever be created is written into its very code, it's worth noting that we have yet to reach that point. And to learn more about where new Bitcoins come from, we went back to Stratfor Senior Science and Technology Analyst, Rebecca Keller. It's part of the design of the algorithm that runs Bitcoin that there would be a set endpoint. And what that does conceptually is it makes Bitcoin more like gold than it is like a traditional currency. So that's where the term mining comes in. It kind of is a a nice play on words there. The mining process is the verification process. So computers solve these equations, these these computing problems in order to create more Bitcoins. That, that, That verifies the new Bitcoin and that's called mining. So instead of going into a mine and, and getting gold out of rock, you now solve a computer problem. Also built into the algorithm is a stopping point. Just like gold, there's a limited amount of that resource in the world. There's also a limited amount of 
bitcoins. Now that that upper limit is somewhat theoretical, but it's thought to be around 21 million coins. So there, there's a there's an end and there's an endpoint. Now that endpoint is likely a century or more away. But what it does again, and that's the conceptual point that I want to emphasize, is that in the creation of Bitcoin, it's set up to be more like gold, a, a solid thing versus the, a currency that can be reprinted and reprinted and reprinted where inflation comes into play in that sense. So that's really what mining and, and what the creating of Bitcoins is and why, why there's a limit. It was part of the invention process of Bitcoin. Thanks again to Stratfall's Rebecca Keller and Doug for writing in with his question. If you'd like to read more of our analysis on this topic or catch one of our recent contributor articles about Black Swan events, you can find all of those on Stratfall Worldview. If you're not already a Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team and enterprise access at worldview.stratfall.com slash subscribe. Now to the second part of our podcast on Black Swan events with visual capitalists Jeff Desjardins. And here with me now is Jeff Dujardin, founder and editor of Visual Capitalist, a website we're big fans of here at Stratfall that creates and curates visual content on investing in business. Thanks for joining me today, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So we talked a little bit with Dr. Ian Morris about the nature of black swan events and how they appear through history and, and how they do tend to put forecasters into a bit of a tailspin. Um, from your perspective, looking at, at investors and, and markets in general, what's your take on the risk that comes from black swan events? Well, the challenge for investors um, and especially the people that are sort of at the top of the food chain that have enormous amounts of uh, wealth and net worth is that it's really hard to quantify the amount of risk that Black Swan uh, has just by nature of what it is. Basically, anytime that investors are looking at the world, they're able to quantify risks for everything that's sort of a known unknown. And a Black Swan is a unknown unknown, and therefore it makes it really hard to figure out what kind of impact that could have on your portfolio and on your wealth. Very much so. And, and certainly one of the things we pride ourselves on at Stratfor is our ability to really apply the geopolitical model, uh, looking at history, looking at politics, looking at geography, and trying to see how things will evolve in the future based upon facts and, and rationality in our method. But certainly when it comes to the world of investing, there is an inherent amount of risk, but also you cannot predict with any degree of uncertainty events in the future. And there was a piece that you did recently, uh, which we refeatured on, on Worldview, uh, about how billionaire investors hedge against geopolitical black swans. Can you talk us through a little bit about some of the ways in which investors mitigate against these uncertain events? I guess the biggest thing to keep in mind is that the people that we're talking about here, billionaires and uh, wealthy investors, their main concern a lot of the time, uh, at least from some of the ones that I've met, are things like, how do I ensure that my wealth stays intact over time? Um, how do I make sure that some sort of big unanticipated event doesn't wipe out everything that I have, that I've spent so much time building, and that kind of thing. And that really helps you get a perspective on what some of these people are thinking. So when you hear about people like Ray Dalio holding on to gold for a portion of his portfolio, that's what he's thinking. He's, he's thinking that you know, if things go badly somehow, I have this sort of insurance measure that's going to help protect my portfolio against anything that can happen. And then when you're looking at someone like Warren Buffett, he has a very different perspective, which is that he's made his career 
going in when there's figurative blood on the streets and he'll go in and buy cheap assets after such an event happens and then ride that to building his net worth. And so he is looking at it a little bit differently. In this case, he is looking at it as I'm going to stockpile cash so that when such an event happens, I can go in and take advantage of it. So it sounds like there's at least two camps here. So you have the protectionists, people who would basically try and shore themselves up against these eventualities, but also the opportunists who are going to look to try and capitalize on uh, on these geopolitical events that will destabilize the global system in some way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. There's a variety of approaches. I guess what's interesting is sort of the mindset these people have when they're approaching these events. Someone like Dalio or maybe David Einhorn is another good example. They're just trying to make sure that at the end of the day, because they don't know what is happening in such a case of an event, they want to make sure that at the end of the day that they have enough wealth left over to maintain their position on top of the food chain. Someone like Warren Buffett is a little bit more practical in how he approaches these things. He's always built wealth the same way since he was a kid, basically. And he adopted sort of the value uh, investing approach when he was going to school at Columbia. And ever since that time, he's always done the same thing over and over, and it's always worked for him. And so he just keeps on with the same approach, which is, as you mentioned, taking advantage of situations where stocks are very undervalued, for example, coming in and scooping those up, and then being careful when valuations are a lot higher, where there could be some sort of a recession or, or fall in prices uh, systemically. And he protects himself by having cash at that point. And it's interesting to see how these approaches will will play out, because clearly the world isn't static. Things are constantly in flux. And, and there is a temptation that when things are stable for a period of years, it almost can, can lull you into a false sense of security. And certainly one of, the, uh, one of our core assumptions is that we are approaching an inflection point. There are changes coming to the global system, which are going to be profound. And certainly, you know, the effects of that are going to be widespread. To what extent do you think people are preparing their positions to cope with these sort of unexpected events? It's a really good question. I think it depends on the person. I, I mean, probably the most interesting thing to look at when you're thinking about an inflection point coming at some point here is that uh, market indices keep on hitting new highs on a, on a daily basis, basically. So in that sense, there is still a lot of, I guess, excitement for, for the market. And so because it keeps going up, it's clear that people aren't all hedging. They must be buying. But it's more the fact that we are trying to cover in our piece is that the billionaire people that we are talking about here, these guys are typically considered the smart money. They typically are ahead of the game. And they are the ones that are starting to think, well, you know, there's some questions here as to whether this is going to be sustainable or not. And I'm going to protect myself regardless of what other people are doing. And I'm going to start making moves in ways that make sense for me in the case that you know, something does happen and uh, hitting new highs uh, with the stock market is, isn't always possible. And clearly the, these people are key influencers because they've made vast amounts of money and have been in the game for a long time. So, so when they make certain decisions, people uh, tend to sit up and listen. But let's, let's look at some of the factors that are influencing them and their decision making. And certainly a common word we keep hearing is, is uncertainty. Um, and there's a number of factors for that. 
And I think a good little microcosm uh, we can look at specifically now is Trump's tour to the Asia-Pacific region, because that touches on a number of intersecting factors. The change perhaps in the US balance of power, but also within that, the Asia-Pacific region, you have major economies and a changing dynamic there. So how do you think, looking at that example in the Asia-Pacific, how is that affecting the way that people are thinking about the future? Well, I think people are still watching him really closely. North Korea is out that way. So there's a lot of discussion about that and how they're looking at containing anything that happens there that might be considered rogue. And so in that sense, I mean, these are themes that have been popping up for the last year. And you're right. This is the perfect sort of limelight for those to appear. So oftentimes we look at singular destabilizing events in the global system that can have a disproportionate impact. But at the moment, we have a number of events that are potentially destabilizing from the Brexit and how that's going to affect uh, Europe and the Eurozone, from the ongoing North Korea nuclearization issue to some of the issues in the Middle East. And these are ge- geopolitical events that, that, that tend to have an impact. But what is the impact on, on the markets themselves and how does this spill over? Right. Over time, we've seen that these events because they're really hard to predict as well, they have a mixed track record in terms of the amount of sell-off that it can occur in the market. So sometimes things happen and you think it would be a big deal. It ends up being a relatively small deal. A good example of that is the actual Brexit vote in June 2016. From our data here, uh, we see that there was a sell-off of about 5.6% on US markets at least, But that basically recovered in a week or two, and it was back up to regular levels. So even though that was an event that could have been a trigger, and it certainly could have crept into other areas, sometimes a sell-off will increase thoughts about other things, or it'll uh, somehow translate into other sell-offs. But in this case, it didn't. But if you go back in history, there's all kinds of events that do have much uh, longer sell-offs, percentage-wise and in terms of days. When you look at something like the 9-11 attacks were an 11.6% drop in markets. Um, If you go back to some of the events in World War II, certainly, all of them are uh, double-digit sell-offs. So when Germany annexed uh, Czechoslovakia, when Germany attacks France, all of these were 20% or bigger sell-offs. And the market wouldn't recover for hundreds of days, obviously, because it went into uh, World War II. So these sell-offs can, it really depends on what the, what the market is thinking at the time of the event and what else is affected. Does the sell-off translate into other sell-offs, basically? Does it, does it have an exponential effect? And do you think that the reduction we're seeing is, do you think it's that events simply have less impact or are of a less serious nature? Or do you think the markets are simply becoming more resilient? There's a couple of school of thoughts on this. The one that I subscribe to generally is that they are more resilient to a point. But what happens at the end is that you have all this systemic risk that's built up in a bunch of different areas, everything from interest rates to quantitative easing that the central banks have been doing um, and all of these types of factors. And it really sets up a fragile potential system that when when it's pushed to the brink, that's when I worry. But it does seem that in the short term that a lot of these events do get shrugged off. So yeah, my concern is when we do have something that's big or that has some contagion into other areas, areas like debt that have been building up globally, what will the impact be then? 
And I think certainly this is one of the lessons we, we can take away from history when considering black swan events is that it's one thing to say, you know, Kesara, Sarah, if it happens, it happens. But actually, what I take on things is by looking back through history and, and accepting that black swans are generally made, not born, and the conditions have to be right to, to spawn them. If you understand long-term patterns and you understand history, you can oftentimes see these, these critical events coming ahead of time. And certainly that is... Uh, of benefit to anyone who has to manage a position. Yeah, and um, one interesting anecdote, which comes from Nassim Taleb's Black Swan Theory, he, he gives three criteria for uh, Black Swan. And one of them is that the event is a surprise, but only to the observer. And so as an example, he says that a black swan may be a surprise to a turkey. I think in the example, he says that the, uh, the turkey has seen increased odds of living a long time because every day he's alive longer and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, one day it's Thanksgiving and therefore it's a black swan to him that he is no longer alive. But to the butcher, he knew all along, right? Because he saw it coming. And so it depends on whether you're an observer or whether you're abreast of what is going on in the world that will see how a black swan will play out. Well, uh, I certainly know uh, which side of the chopping block I would prefer to be on. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for, for talking about this with me today. And I would definitely encourage everybody to uh, to look either on Stratford Worldview or on Visual Capitalist for the kind of infographics that Jeff and his team make. They, they really explain complexity in an incredibly uh, engaging and visually appealing way. So please definitely check that out. Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ben. That's it for this episode of the Stratfall Podcast. If you'd like to read more about Black Swan events, we'll include links to Ian Morris's recent worldview contribution and Visual Capitalist's incredible infographic in the show notes. You can also see what Stratfall's geopolitical analysts are forecasting for both near and long-term global trends on our forecast page. If you're not already a Stratfall Worldview member, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfall.com slash subscribe to get access to all of our forecasts and more than two decades of strategic insight into the underlying drivers behind world affairs. Worldview members can also continue this conversation in our members-only forum. That's where you can engage directly with other readers, as well as Stratfall analysts, editors, and contributors. If you have a question or an idea for a future episode of the podcast, email us at podcast at stratfall.com. Or give us a call on 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, to leave a message. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have a moment, also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that bring global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter, at Stratfor. Stratfor.